all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to founders, entrepreneurs, operators, and investors about all things value creation within startups. Today, I am speaking to Tom Griffiths, who is the founder and CEO of Hone HQ, which is a uh, horizontal SaaS platform in which we're going to talk more about. Uh, Previously, he was the co-founder and chief product officer of FanDuel. Um, Tom is a great entrepreneur who's very good at building value creation, and I'm super lucky to have him on. Tom, how you doing? David, great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, do well, thanks. You know, just another crazy day in startup land, but can't complain. You just closed a $30 million Series B, yeah? Yes, yeah. Glad to get it in the bank. Um, we did it this summer, um, just announced it uh, earlier this month. So yeah, we're, we're thrilled. Tell me a little bit about Hone. What, what, what's this? What's this new thing? I want, I want to go talk about FanDuel, but I want to talk right now. I want to put the, the light on Hone and Hone HQ and what you're doing now, and because I think that's more relevant for today. No, I appreciate it. It's like the musician that gets to talk about his new album as opposed to like, <laughs> yeah. before. <laughs> yeah, but play, but yeah, but play Freebird. You know yeah. what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll get to that. No, I mean Hone actually came out of FanDuel, right? So um, you know, we did FanDuel, scaled it for ten years. Was the head of product, but cared a lot about um, you know developing our people. Always had a, a personal passion for education. Um, my mom was a public school teacher, and I taught when I was doing my PhD program, and so cared about upskilling people. And you can see that the technical upskilling was kind of figured out, right? You could go to the internet and get better at JavaScript or Python or whatever. The piece that wasn't figured out is like how do you make someone a better manager, or how do you make someone more collaborative? Like these are the key people skills that we could see that really made the difference in successful teams. Uh, but, you know, the way that you would train that is either you don't, like so many companies don't even think to do that, um, or, you know, there's, there's an experience that you go sit in the classroom, maybe at your HQ that you've flown in, uh, in for, maybe you're sitting at a courtyard Marriott for a couple of days with some person with a flip chart at the front of the classroom. Like traditional corporate training is really boring and certainly doesn't scale to today's um, uh, hybrid and uh, remote workplace. So about four years ago, uh, this was pre-pandemic, um, we got thinking about as product people, how could we just blow up that stuffy corporate classroom training experience? And reimagine it for uh, the modern workplace, which was much more distributed, much more data driven, um, and much more kind of consumer grade in terms of the digital experience that people get. Uh, And so we started goofing around building Zoom based classes uh, for things like feedback and delegation and, you know, manager 101. We realized that customers needed help scaling that. Um, you know, just the logistics and the reminders and the rescheduling and, you know, the reporting. So we built a SaaS platform that does that part. And then COVID happened, um, which was just a tremendous kind of explosion, explosion point for us where everybody suddenly is working remote and hybrid. And the solution we'd built thinking a few years ahead was now, you know, it right 
meeting the moment. Uh, so that's how we got started with Hone and, and that's what we do. That, that, that's super interesting. When I always think like that consulting and corporate training, that's that's a very mature business. And, you know, I think about people that provide those services, um, you know, they, they have to bring a lot of value because they charge a lot of money. But, you know, there's a place for them in the world because, in-house training of people that are actually providing house in training it's like a check the box type of type of thing and and it's it's never it's it's never good right so how do you think about um how do you think about when uh, an employee goes and starts receiving your training on your platform how do you think about like the value they get from receiving that versus the value they could get in real life from not like a corporate training program but you know just you know, uh, a mentorship program from somebody within the organization, because I see a lot of, you know, companies that, you know, they don't have really great culture and leadership um, skills because it's not a part of their culture or leadership. Right. And if they're not adopting it at a senior level, how can they expect to people adopt it on the mid management? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that last point is a really important one. Like, as the leader of the company, you really need to model the values, the culture, the practices. And so, you know, we do do executive briefings um, for you know, the top team for them to understand at least the principles that we're teaching further down the organization because it's got to connect. You're, you're absolutely right. But in terms of like, how does that relate to other um, learning experiences like mentorship or you know, real world projects? I mean, I, I think it takes a multifaceted approach to develop someone as a manager or as an leader. Uh, and the part that we play is that you know, more formal training where everybody needs to understand like what is a structure of a coaching conversation? Like how do you do that? But also giving them an opportunity to practice it in our sessions. Uh, so they're highly interactive. We're not talking about webinars. It's like 10 or 12 people together with a coach practicing what they've been taught, getting feedback, doing it again. Uh, and so they, they get to build the muscle in the sessions that they then go and use in the real world. So there's more of a blurry line between you know the training itself and how they're applying it because we're doing that you know once a week for several weeks you know they'll learn a technique they'll go practice it in the real world and then they'll you know come back together and talk about how that went versus again the kind of the two-day annual training offsite where it's just a bunch of new stuff and then you know you're left to your own devices so so there's that i also think that you know mentorship to your point is very inconsistent like someone might have a great mentor and they might teach them everything and that's wonderful um but oftentimes that's not the case and there can also be bias introduced in membership uh, sorry mentorship um where there's kind of familiarity bias if you're mentoring someone from your school at your company it can perpetuate the same um lack of diversity up the organization as uh, uh, as there's always been and so it's fairer and more universal and accessible to have the broad-based training first so that everybody gets the same experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I can see that. Why do you think that leadership and soft skill training isn't something that has been really adopted? I mean, is it because like, it's not, it's their personality, you know, indexing's there. It's been around for a while. However, I would just think it would, it's, it's everything, right? And why hasn't it been really proliferated into corporate development? Yeah, I, I think there's two two ends of the market, the top and the bottom, right? And so if you're a CEO or, or you're on an executive team, the company can justify paying for an expensive coach for you and some expensive training because it is expensive. Like you've got to fly people in, you've got to fly the instructor in, you've got to rent out your hotel ballroom for a couple of days. 
And so really the company can only justify paying for that for you know, a senior audience. Um, what do they do for everybody else? Well, they, they do what they can, which is nowadays really just um, buying a video library. So it might be a LinkedIn learning or something from HBR, gives people videos that they can go watch if they ask, like, how do I get do a performance review? Well, we can't afford to fly you into the location where we would train you, but go watch this video. And so what we're trying to do with Hone is actually bring the executive level experience to the masses because we can now with uh, tools like Zoom and the pricing model that we've got and the software that we've built that makes the logistics um, automated so that, you know, you don't have that overhead. Um, and so you can actually get it further down the org. And, you know, part of our mission is to, to create access to that executive level training. And so how much of it is like, would you say, I mean, you do have content on the on the platform as well, correct? Yeah, I mean, 90% of our experience is live classes, and then we have supporting content that reinforce that. So say you learn how to give feedback in January, but your performance review cycle when you're um, you know, evaluating your team member is in June, you can go watch the video to, to recap um, you know, what you learned. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's interesting. Um, because, you know, content is, you know, I mean, I was in kind of a platform content publishing business and it took about three months before all of it was on on youtube <laughs> right i mean people just rip it off right um but having that live engagement was that difficult raising money knowing that you had to support you know coaches and and people in your cost of goods and it wasn't like a super you know scaly type SaaS company that you see traditionally get funded in silicon valley yeah, sure. I mean, it's definitely um, uh, an atypical model, uh, for sure, to have the you know, a human in the loop, should we say, uh, delivering things. I originally set out, um, my grad school was in machine learning and uh, an AI. And so I thought maybe we can make an AI coach that will just teach people without a human, and that can scale to everybody. Turns out, shocker, um, you need real people to teach real people skills, because um, the conversation <laughs> is so nuanced. Um, you know, you don't feel accountable to a chatbot, right? You, you feel accountable to your peers and to a human. And so quickly we realized we needed to have that human in the loop to create an effective learning experience. But what's nice about our model is that we get so many efficiencies from software when it comes to logistics and reinforcement. And there's a lot of pooled budget because, you know, if a company's got a budget of a few hundred dollars per head, um, and we're training 15 people at a time, that allows us to, you know, generate good revenue per class and pay the coach really well per class as well, but still make a good margin. And so um, our margins are approaching software margins, you know, north of 70%, uh, which you wouldn't see, say, with a more traditional services business or a a one-to-one coaching platform. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I feel when building a product like this, solve the problem first, you know, in a a real meaningful way before you start optimizing for margin. 100%. Yeah, you need to know that you've got something that people will buy and love and use and continue to use and actually delivers the result you're saying you're going to deliver. And then once you've got that, probably got there doing like, you know, a few different spreadsheets, automations, hacky code that you want to throw away. And then, you know, then you start to harden the solution and make it more efficient. And, you know, we've been on this journey at Hone. We did this journey at FanDuel. Um, you just kind of start cranking through automating the pieces and improving your margin. But yeah, you've got to find the shortest path to value um, early on for sure. So I've been um, I've been thinking a little bit about corporate training and um, and basically employee engagement, you know, recruiting anything within the HR world lately. And I look at 
you know, what what's going to happen in the United States over the next 12, 24, 36 months as far as economy, you know, global unrest, inflation, and all that stuff. And, and I think about, you know, yes, recruiting people and engaging people and keeping people was a problem um, in, in a great economy. Is it going to be a really big problem going forward? And, you know, I think I, I hope hopefully the answer, you know, I mean, I, hopefully companies want to continue to enhance, right, people over time. But do you feel like um, do you feel like the 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 efficacy of a lot of the employee engagement is going to be there in a contracting economy, like when when loaves of bread are four dollars? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I mean, few things to say on this. First of all, I mean, the picture right now in the economy is, is quite mixed um, in that, yes, there's inflation and interest rates going up, but um, unemployment is close to all-time lows. And so it's still... I know. It's crazy. It is crazy. And so it's quite a tight labor market, which means that recruitment and retention are still challenges uh, for companies. But, you know, in other ways, you know, business isn't doing so well. And so, you know, that put, puts pressure on budget. And so what we say to companies and they understand is that, okay, if you've, you may be frozen headcount because you know, you, you're nervous or uncertain about how um, revenues are going to grow over the next 12 months, or maybe you've even done a riff where you've reduced headcount, well, you've certainly got fewer people either way than you thought you would, and you still have these lofty ambitions. So how do you get more from the people that you have still with you? Uh, well, obviously, that's training um, to, to upscale so that they can do more. The other thing is you've got to hold on to those people. If the culture starts to get a little bit stale because you know, you're stagnating as a business or you're laying people off, you've got to retain the people that you do have. Um, and there was some um, research that McKinsey did recently over the summer, asked people who just left their job, what was the reason that you left your job? Top one wasn't salary. Salary was number two. Uh, top one was lack of uh, learning and development and career growth opportunities. So if you want to hold on to people, you really do need to um, provide that. And so that's our argument for, for learning and development, even in a tight, tight market. Does, do, do you ever come into a situation where um, this might be a little too much of inside baseball and you could you know, not, not answer it if you don't want, but do you ever go into a situation where a really toxic company comes to you and they, you know, they blame their employees about culture and they come in and then all of a sudden it becomes a really big bitch session to their coach about how much their company sucks. <laughs> 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 like I could see that happening. Totally. I mean, we, we, we are lucky to work with a bunch of great companies. I don't know that I would describe any of their cultures as toxic, but we definitely see some disgruntled employees as you would anywhere um, and one of the things that, you know, we try to avoid is putting like a manager and their employee in the same session so that everyone can be candid. But, you know, training can be a solution for that as well, like a, a tonic. Um, we've seen people go to a conflict resolution workshop, accidentally um, get put into a breakout room together when, in fact, they never should have been because they've been feuding for years and they hate each other. But suddenly, you know, Zoom tells you you're in this one on one breakout room for 10 minutes to like walk through this new learning that you've got. And the story, that was a real story. And they came out saying, wow, we actually resolved a bunch of stuff that we'd been struggling with for years because of how, you know, this training had helped us kind of have a conversation or um, a framework to think about our differences. And so, you know, they're friends forever now. So you can have 
a yeah um, a healing effect I think on culture um, through through training. The other nice thing I suppose is that you know, oftentimes culture, especially remote culture these days, can be quite um, distributed and siloed because you're not bumping into people in the office so much. But if you're doing training with folks from engineering and marketing and sales all together that might not normally work together, they get to know each other through this kind of deep developmental experience so that they've got those connections across the company um, for, you know, for, for the normal workplace. So it, it, it definitely heals culture in a, in a few different ways. So if you were to rewind back to seed days, Hone HQ seed days, and you're you know putting together your product, you're talking to customers, you're selling. How did you identify? Because you said this a couple of different times, and I think it's super important. But identifying budget around this, like, how did you think about developing your product and you know talking about like budget share and like what you could capture within the wallet? Yeah. Could you talk to especially for a founder that's you know trying to figure out how to really price their product, how to really position their product within you know a list of vendors that uh, their customer might use. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in those early days and now we're still internally, we're tight on budget. So we couldn't afford Hone.com, which would be the company name, uh, .com. We had to get Hone HQ, which was a much cheaper domain, but the company name is actually Hone. So I should have made that clearer. At the <laughs> <laughs> this is costing you fortune, man. It's, yeah, like, people exactly. are, I mean, like I'm calling it Hone HQ and, you know, this is... <laughs> Uh, yeah, totally. One day, if, you, if you're listening and you own Hone.com, give me a call. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah so that, that was us in the early days. But how did we identify budget with customers? I mean, I think there's a, just a vast difference for entrepreneurs who are going after existing budget, um, which would be a Hone. Um, you know, people have a training budget. They're going to spend it with a vendor. We just need to be the best vendor. Or, you know, Versus a company that's trying to create a budget for something. Um, a, a company in our space is a bit like that. It's done it very successfully. That would be like a better up because um, companies didn't necessarily have a budget for one-on-one coaching for you know, the upper half of their company. But um, you know, better up did a great job of convincing them that they should do uh, that. But it's, it just takes longer and it's hard. It's a more of an uphill battle if there's not a budget already. And I think one of my repeated lessons, having done it wrong um, a few times in the past, is that when you're creating a new product, I, I prefer the first category um, because if you're just one step away from something that people know, um, then it's really easy to describe. You can say why it's different and better. Uh, there's often an existing budget or you know, route to market. Um, and so I think you can get, get to success faster that way than getting too off the beaten track and creating something too crazy and new. I mean, of course, the greatest companies in the world have been built that way. I'm not saying don't do that. Um, but if you, if you want to play the probabilities and, you know, you have a portfolio of one as an entrepreneur, like you're pouring everything into uh, your business and perhaps you're a second time or kind of um, middle-aged founder like me and you want to have a bit more certainty than the big swings you take in your 20s, then I, I prefer the kind of the first category of existing market, existing budget, build a 10x better solution and just go sell into that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Especially if you're in B2B enterprise kind of SaaS, like don't, right. don't take big swings, you know, you know, learn. Because I mean, what you don't know, I mean, you could build something that's 10x better and then you can do your kind of leapfrog innovation after you have a portfolio. Totally. And there's a playbook and it's someone's job to go out and buy your product. They're a more rational buyer. Um, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about how you, tell me a little bit about yourself 
prior to FanDuel, going into FanDuel, and then going into uh, into home. Because um, really curious to know your background. You said you were got a doctorate degree. That's cool. Um, so tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of what you all you did. Yeah, totally. So I grew up in Wales, a proud Welshman and Welsh rugby fan. Um, maybe there's a few listening, who knows? Uh, went to college in Cambridge for computer science. So um, it was a CS major and really, you know, was just kind of enthralled by the startup world. Uh, I'm dating myself, but I was undergrad around kind of 2000. Um, and so, you know, it was the dot com boom and then bust, but it just seemed so exciting what was possible there. Uh, you know, looked up to companies like Google, where the founders had a PhD um, uh, or were on a PhD program um, and used that novel technology to create, you know, an incredible world-changing company. So for someone that wanted to have impact, I was like, okay, I want to I go into research because I can either be a researcher and discover stuff for the world or um, I can discover an idea for a company. And so I started a PhD in Edinburgh uh, in Scotland in machine learning and computer vision. Um, way before it was cool uh, and kind of in a different era of the field uh, in 2004, 2005. Um, but, you know, yeah, you wouldn't have been fun to drink with in Scotland. I <laughs> well, I, well we could, you'd have to check that. Check. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Edinburgh has more pubs per square mile than any other city in Europe, and we tried them all. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. Definitely a fun place. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the mission was always to have a big impact on the world, either through research or through companies. And companies just felt like the faster path to do it. Um, and then, you know, in the mid 2000s, you saw companies like YouTube that to a naive 23 year old or whatever were just websites, um, selling for billions of dollars and like impacting, you know, millions of people. So like, okay, I don't need a PhD level research project to go start a company. I can just create a really great consumer experience on the web and that can you know, be my company. And so I actually quit the PhD program, got my master's, quit the PhD. I'm not officially a doctor, um, much to the disappointment of my parents, but did get to uh, um, start companies right out of grad school. Uh, I had a couple that, um, you know, we ended up pivoting away from that ultimately became FanDuel. Um, and that just took off like a rocket ship, um, making more money, I think, in the first month than the other ideas had made in the first two years. So even though it was kind of a quirky space for us, um, you know, it was just an opportunity too good to, to turn down. And so we wrote it all the way. Um, and then, you know, the rest is history. How did you get, how did you come up with that idea, you and your co-founders? There was like three of you, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there was five of us um, originally. Um, Three of us for the previous company paired with two uh, new folks that actually knew how to build businesses. We knew how to... <laughs> Some grown-ups. Three for us, two grown-ups. We, yeah. we knew how to build products um, and technology, so it was a great, great match. Um, wasn't our first idea. Uh, we actually started working on um, a company called HubDub. Uh, it was a news prediction site where you could go make play money bets or predictions on news stories, whether that was... Um, Brad and Angelina at the time, or it was like 2008. So it was kind of the democratic primary and then the, the election. So politics, celebrity gossip, world news. And it was kind of fun. You know, it was free to use. We got about 50,000 users. Didn't make much money. I think probably about $400 in revenue uh, a month. So like zero. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Product market fed, baby. Yeah. There you go. Enough to pay for a few pints in the Scottish pubs, but that was about it. 
Um, and so we knew we needed to pivot. Uh, we'd raised a Series A. Um, this was a 2008 Scottish Series A, so it was about 1.5 million. Um, uh, you know, not a lot of cash these days, but um, we made it last for like a year and a half or something. Um, but yeah, we, we ended up realizing we needed to monetize. We saw that the category in HubDub that was the busiest, that had the most predictions every single day was sports. So we're like, okay, we need to do a daily prediction game that's in sports that we can monetize. And we can do that monetization within the framework of fantasy sports and not, um, you know, it wouldn't be illegal gambling. So let's do a daily fantasy sports site, except that it wasn't called that then. We were just goofing around with different game concepts. Um, and it worked. I mean, I built the first version of FanDuel um, in a Google spreadsheet. Um, you know, I put an ad on Craigslist saying, hey, I'm going to play this quirky game every day. Send me some money over PayPal. I'll send you some money back if you win. And people did it. Uh, we couldn't believe it. Uh, and, you know, the best thing about it was they would email me when I'd stop, you know, I'd do an experiment for a couple of days and I'd stop doing it. Then they'd email me, like, email me saying, look, when's the next game? I want to play. I want to do more. Five bucks is not enough. Let's do 50. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, I think we might have something here. If it wasn't Craigslist, PayPal, and Google Sheets, and it was actually a nice website, uh, we might have a business. So we de-risked the ideas, I think, uh, early on um, through kind of prototyping that way. And you and who is the other one? Who is the other big one? Uh, Draft something. Yeah, DraftKings. Forget right? the name. Yeah, something like that. I'm, so I'm you kidding. two were the you, you two were the biggest yeah yeah fuck them um <laughs> you, you, you two were the biggest in the space what type like I mean you kind of created the space so what I mean like regulatory hurdles I mean dot 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 what was that like yeah definitely I mean you know, credit to DraftKings we got started in. 2009 with FanDuel, built the biggest company in the space um, and stopped counting uh, in our spreadsheet of competitors around competitor number 90. Like there's just too many people doing something similar to keep track of in those early days. DraftKings were really the only other company that broke out. And, you know, it was kind of a, a two horse race uh, and it has been ever since. Um, but, you know, it was fiercely competitive uh, between the two of us. Um, you know, we had Slightly different um, products, but really it's the same product and business underneath. Sure, yeah. And so it was just kind of a uh, an arms race to see who could raise and spend the most to to win the market. Um, because it was a marketplace model, you know, the more people you have, the bigger the prize pools, the more people you get. There's a there's a circular network effect, and so it was really important to both of us to to be the biggest, and so we would compete every football season um, by raising money early in the summer and then spending <laughs> it late in the summer to get as many people as we could between 15th of August and 15th of October. Um, and that really came to a head in 2015 when you couldn't look at a sports game or a sports channel without seeing an ad for us. I think between the two of us, on average, every 90 seconds, uh, we were showing an ad. And that pissed a ton of people off, to be honest. <laughs> so, so um, prevalent, busy, and annoying. Um, and you know, the reason we did it was because it worked. Um, we'd proven at smaller scales that you know we knew how much, uh, how many users we would get for whatever TV channel, TV ad, um, t uh, time of day. So we could calculate exactly how much we uh, needed to spend to keep ahead of DraftKings. 
Um, but we had to make that spend all happen in that two-month window, and that's why it was just so bunched up uh, and concentrated. Um, that, you know, to answer your question, is what ultimately led to our regulatory cycle. Uh, we thought by 2015, you know, we'd got through you know, four or five rounds of, of serious funding, um, and they'd all done their legal due diligence, so it felt like the legal question mark had kind of evaporated uh, years ago. Um, and then, because we pissed off America, <laughs> sports-loving America, uh, with too many ads, then that um, made us a bit of a target. And so there was a scandal that kind of um, lit the match that exploded everything. Um, and that was that uh, an employee at DraftKings, um, the same day as he accidentally published some of the uh, lineup data that he had privileged access to on DraftKings happened to win $300,000 or $350,000 on FanDuel. And so this got picked up by the New York Times as some kind of insider trading scandal. And Right. Big, big explosion, right? Big explosion, yep. I, I mean, I remember getting news alerts from the New York Times saying FBI investigating FanDuel and DraftKings. I'm like, oh, that's my company. Okay. Um, deal with it in the morning. But... Um, yeah, the, that was a wild time. Um, and the team, I, I can't personally take a ton of credit for this, but the team did a great job on the legal side of really working um, with regulators and states to create a brand new legal framework for DFS. Um, and that uh, allowed us to operate with clarity um, and legitimacy um, in almost all states. Uh, and so that was a cycle to go through. Uh, it certainly kind of threatened the business at the early stages when we didn't know how many um, states would be able to, to pass legislation in. But actually, you know, now is, is a really healthy business. And of course, um, you know, the world has changed with uh, passport. Well, the government probably, yeah, the government probably didn't understand it. And you had to handhold them to make sure that the consumers were protected, right? Um, at the end of the day. That's right. And the government was just seeing these crazy headlines where, you know, we'd be accused both of, um, uh, being gambling, which is kind of a random game experience, and being a shark-infested pool where all these skilled players were eating up these smaller um, players, which would require it not to be kind of a random chance game. So you can't really have both, but we were anyway being attacked for, for being both. Um, and so they were just wanting to make sure, like, to what degree was that true? How can we protect consumers from that? Um, and, yeah, we, we changed the product and... Um, or evolved the product to, to fit with those regulations and you know, it's a healthy business again. How nice is it to be able to pay a sales team to bring in money except for paying Google and Facebook? <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, it's, it's very different. I mean, you know, we didn't have a single salesperson in the 500 to 1,000 person uh, company that was Fangio uh, when I was there, bigger now. Um, and so... It's nice that you get such FaceTime with your customers. You can get the nuanced feedback through the sales team or by you know, riding side saddle with the sales team. The thing that I've noticed that's harder um, is, of course, if you're pivoting or if you're changing your messaging, then it's not just a question of like making a few different ads, changing the landing page for consumers and the way to go. You've got like 20 salespeople to train the new pitch to. Um, and so you've got to kind of go one by one or small groups to like, teach them what's different, have them pitch it back to you, 
tell them what they could do better. And so there's quite a laborious um, process of um, change. And so that makes it even more important to make sure that you've got strong product market fit before you really lean into scaling the team. Because if you're trying to whiplash all over the place, then it's just not going to work in that setting. Uh, What are you excited about these days? I mean, a lot of things. Having 30 million bucks in the bank gives you a lot of latitude. Um, You know, one of my favorite parts of building a company is obviously building the team. Um, And the thing that's perhaps a little different with Hone versus FanDuel is, you know, the mission of education, of democratizing great executive training for for as many people on the planet as we can really, you know, moves me um, every day, but also attracts, um, you know, a certain mission-driven type of person. Um, and so I love the, the level of talent that I'm getting to meet as we talk about the different roles we have in, you know, sales and engineering and uh, account management and, and learning design and coaching. That That's awesome. And it's kind of like just gives you this entrepreneur's high when you've been searching for someone for a role for a while and you meet just like the perfect person and you, you know they're going to be awesome. So I love that part of it. And we're, we're certainly doing a lot of hiring. Um, I'm also excited about, you know, the extra stuff we can do now. Um, you know, we've been very focused on manager training so far. Um, we've recently branched out into DEI and do a lot of work there, but we're now moving into um, individual collaboration skills. We're doing some wellness and mental health programming. We're actually doing some like personality testing and team dynamic stuff that really takes an executive team style experience to frontline teams to help them work more effectively together. So it's just cool to be ex- like have the capital to be experimenting and pushing the product um, forward a bit faster. What do you feel the biggest threat to Hone is? It's a good question. Um, I think it's it's fast followers. To be honest, I think that we are doing something that's unique that um, that other companies can't. Well, traditional training companies who we compete with often have great people and great content, but they, they're not tech companies by DNA. Uh, and so it's hard for them to kind of make that shift and compete with us on the tech side. So I would be thinking about companies who um, have some tech, have a mission that's similar to ours. Maybe their model isn't working so well, so they're going to pivot to what is working to, to the earlier point. Like we are now the example of something that's working really well. So can they, you know, do something that's one step removed from us or be a kind of fast follower to us? Um, that was what happened with DraftKings, right? They, they launched in 2012. Uh, we, we launched in 09. So that kind of gives me <laughs> scar tissue from like the du- duopoly that we created to make me want to move as fast as I possibly can with homes so we don't see those fast followers. Sure. Right, because what you don't want is you don't want, especially if like you have investor, like that your competitors have investors that are not really into economics like as much, and they like you know they, they don't care what they what they pay or what the the ACV is or anything, and um, it can get it can get pretty dicey pretty quick, um, and and like honestly like they they can just outlast you right from a capital perspective. But I, I love what you're doing. You know, I'm sure that. There's a lot of value. I'm sure that your product isn't cheap, um, nor should it be, because it's got probably you're probably bringing a ton of value to these companies, and um, you know that's going to give you some staying power, which is awesome. Thank you, absolutely. Awesome. Quick, uh, quick couple questions, canned questions. Um, what is your favorite book? I just read um, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Um, they're Navy SEALs. They're incredibly decorated as. Um, soldiers in their own right, but then they became the leadership trainers for the Navy SEALs. So if you want to know really 
actionable, simple, literally battle-tested leadership tips, then that is a great book. Um, also enjoyed Amp It Up recently by Frank Sleepman and all of the kind of great and the good personal development stuff that is on my shelf as well. Yeah, Sleepman's a beast. Um, I still don't know, really know what Snowflake does, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's an incredible company. Same. Uh, yeah, but yeah, he's a beast. And then Jocko, I love that book as well. I've read that. You know, I like how he like compares it to actually a military experience and then the actual learning after that. I think that's pretty, pretty neat. Yeah. Um, and if you can remember Tom, that under fire, then you can remember it when you're in the startup. So you like there it. you go. There you go. Are you, is Jocko going to do any content for you? Hey, if you if you want to drop him a text for me, that would be great. He actually lives in Dude, San you, Diego as well. So yeah, you got the money, man. You can no, do well, it. Well, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Thirty million. Send uh, three to Jocko, and maybe he'll speak to us. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, all right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack, where we talk to founders, entrepreneurs, and operators and investors about all things value creation. We drop an episode every Tuesday. Please like, follow, comment, uh, get back to me, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.